Well, what a great lead-in to uh, talking about Nehemiah building walls against opposition. Um, it wasn't a blower, but uh, it was quite significant opposition. Hey, great to see you this morning, great to be with you. And thanks, Ali, for the um, lead-up to uh, put everybody in the picture so they don't have to do any um, catching up. Hey, Elva and Elise, thank you for what you shared. Elva, you remind me so much of my mother. Um, and that was very precious. Thank you. Now, for Rob Coombs' benefit, I'm going to start today with a poem. Rob could probably recite this off by heart. Um, Rudyard Kipling wrote a very stirring poem uh, entitled If. You've probably all heard it. It's that one that ends at the very end with, You'll be a man, my son. Um, and I'm only going to read you the first verse, but uh, it goes like this. If you can keep your head when all about you are losing theirs and blaming it on you, if you can trust yourself when all men doubt you, but make allowance for their doubting too, if you can wait and not be tired by waiting, or being lied about, don't deal in lies, or being hated, don't give way to hating, and on and on and it goes, you'll be a man, my son. A very uh, amazing um, bit of poetry, many, many verses, um, but... I think as a lead into what we're going to talk today about Nehemiah, in Nehemiah chapters 3 to 6, uh, Nehemiah showed himself to be a man, uh, absolutely, in, in Kipling's sense, and perhaps even more profoundly than Rudyard Kipling would have understood because Nehemiah wasn't trusting himself. Uh, he was trusting fairly and squarely uh, in his God. Let's just um, see these slides. I want to talk initially about how the fact that the building of the wall was a united effort. The task of rebuilding these walls was absolutely massive. There's a little bit of um, conjecture about where the walls actually went and you know, the, the actual location of the walls. They've changed a lot over the centuries. Um, but the overall length of the walls that Nehemiah was to build was um, estimated to be being between three and six kilometres. Now, it was rebuilding. It wasn't building from scratch. It was probably a lot of repairing. Um, but a, a quote by Josephus states that the circumference of Jerusalem in his day was 33 stadia, uh, which is just about, about four miles or thereabouts. Uh, and Nehemiah had this amazing plan to divide the, the sections of the wall, as you can see in the diagram. Uh, he divided it into 41 uh, sections and he listed them counterclockwise. So if you see in the, um, on the corner up there the sheep gate, they started there. And uh, these sections that are being rebuilt are, are listed in Chapter 3 in order. Um, and so although the exact location of all the towers and gates isn't known, it's a really clear picture going right around that circle um, of the, the way the wall was going to be rebuilt. And Chapter 3 of Nehemiah explains how Nehemiah just mobilised the people to build in sections, uh, different groups focusing on their section. Uh, he seemed to have a little bit of wisdom in getting family groups to focus on the section near where they were living, so they had some ownership of the bit they were building, which makes a lot of sense. We tend to do a better job, don't we, when we're going to get a, a benefit from the, uh, the work. And one of the interesting little highlights in Nehemiah chapter 3, that in, in the lists of, of all the people who are working, a lot of the people are leaders, people of high rank, um, but they're listed along with, with common labourers, all joining together to rebuild the wall, a, a really united effort, with one exception. There's these people called the Tikoites, and uh, it says the proud Tikoite nobles, um, 
it was like the work was beneath their dignity. It says they didn't put their hand to the work. Um, and the, the interesting thing is that it's almost like the men of Tokoa, almost ashamed of their leaders, do twice the amount of work. Because you read, they, they, they did a bit of the wall, and then when you get around to the, the top section there, you'll see a, a long section in yellow. Um, and that's the Tiko White said, they, they said they'll do another bit. So it's almost like they're making up for their, their leaders who were, were too proud to, uh, to give it a go. But anyway, in all of uh, this, you, you can see Nehemiah's skill as an administrator. Um, he delegates and he motivates and uh, he encourages. And, and we get a glimpse in, in Nehemiah chapter 3 of, of real people doing you know, real work, going after it willingly, giving of themselves generously, united together um, and organised competently and uh, led well by Nehemiah. But there were obstacles everywhere. Repairing these broken walls wasn't plain sailing. Uh, and these chapters 4 to 6 focus on the, the myriad obstacles that uh, had to be overcome in building the wall. Some were from opponents of the returned exiles, uh, and some of the, the problems were the, of the, the making of the Jews themselves, of their own making. But three characters stand out as, as ringleaders. Um, There's the best photo I could find of these guys. Um, <laughs> and uh, they don't look real scary enough, I don't think, but there was Sanballat, Tobiah and Geshem. Now, Sanballat apparently held uh, some sort of official command position in Samaria. Um, and from the, the moment of uh, Nehemiah's arrival in Judea, he set himself uh, to oppose and thwart every endeavour uh, of those who were seeking the welfare of Jerusalem and the rebuilding of the walls. He was most probably uh, a Moabite from the uh, tribe of Moab. They were long-time enemies of the Israelites. And then there was Tobiah. He's an Ammonite. Uh, and he's maybe a servant of Sanballat. It's not abundantly clear. And there's this other guy called Geshem, who is uh, an Arabian. And uh, they together seem to be uh, in cahoots in trying to uh, make it really, really difficult for Nehemiah and the Jews rebuilding the wall. They did it in a number of ways. The first is I've called psychological games. They're aiming to destroy the morale uh, of the, the Israelites, to make them feel depressed and hopeless, make them look like fools for attempting what they've chosen to do. It's quite comical as you read this. This is what he says. Um, Sanballat's very angry when he learn, learns that the Jews are going to rebuild the wall and he flies into a rage and he mocks the Jews in front of his friends and in front of the Samaritan army uh, and he says this. What does this bunch of poor, feeble Jews think they're doing? Do they think they can build the wall in a single day by just offering a few sacrifices? Do they actually think they can make something of stones from a rubbish heap? and charred ones at that. And then uh, Tobiah uh, pops in, that was Sam Belt, Tobiah pops in and he says, that stone would collapse. That stone wall would collapse, even if a fox walked along the top of it. And so uh, he's uh, attempted um, a little bit of humour there. But what are these feeble Jews doing? How um, insulting. It's like to say, what a pathetic, incompetent lot they look like. Will they restore the wall? Obviously, you know, a task that's way, way beyond them. Will they offer sacrifices as if by offering sacrifices to their God they might somehow magically get a wall to appear? Um, will they finish in a day? Well, if they've got no idea what sort of a task they've undertaken. And can they bring these burned stones back to life? Don't they know that burned stones crumble? Well, actually, it doesn't even say that the, 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 wall, the, the stones were, were burned, only just the gates, but they add that bit in. And then 
Tobiah very, very wittily says, if a fox climbed the wall, it would collapse. And so Sanballat and Tobiah are mocking these wall builders as fools, playing on their inner insecurities, their, their self-doubt, their fear of failure. And I think some of those things are, are things that many of us struggle with, don't we? We feel sometimes quite insecure about who we are and uh, what we've been called to do. Um, we probably feel prone to failure and we don't like the idea of being a failure. Paul, in his letter to um, 1 Corinthians, talks about the wisdom and work of God that often appears as foolishness to people who don't yet know Jesus. And if you're a follower of Jesus here today, you'll realise that there are times when people think you're a fool for what you believe and for the way you've chosen to live. Paul says this in, in 1 Corinthians. He says, When we preach that Christ was crucified, the Jews are offended... And the Gentiles say it's all nonsense. But to those called by God to salvation, both Jews and Gentiles, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. This foolish plan of God is wiser than the wisest of human plans and God's weakness is stronger than the greatest of human strength. Let's be encouraged. What appears to many people as foolishness is actually the power of God and the wisdom of God. Well, in response to their ridicule, Nehemiah prays. And as you read these passages, he prays often. It's, it reflects his relationship with God. He says, hear us, O God, and turn their insults back on their heads. He does a lot of this asking God to deal with these people. He's not saying, I'm going to take vengeance, but it's like vengeance is God's and God will deal with them. Um, hear us, O God. So morale is retained amongst the Jews and they make steady progress on the wall and it says that a little later at last the wall was completed to half its height around the entire city for the people had worked with enthusiasm. Well if that wasn't uh, enough for Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem they started to make physical threats. It says when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs, Ammonites and Ashdodites heard that the work was going ahead and that the gaps in the wall of Jerusalem were being repaired they were furious they all made plans to come and fight against Jerusalem and to throw us into confusion. It seems like they're oppressed on every side. Sanballat is up in the north. Tobiah and the Ammonites are in the east. The Arabs are down to the south. And the forces of Ashdod are to the west. And so they're totally surrounded by enemies. And the enemies are, are making threats. Our enemies were saying, before they know what's happening, we'll swoop down on them and kill them and end their work. And then the Jews, who live near the enemy came and told us again and again, some passages, some translations say 10 times, as if, you know, haven't I told you a dozen times, they'll come from all directions and attack us. And they're living in fear that uh, their enemies were going to come and physically uh, attack them. And so how does Nehemiah respond? He says, we prayed to God and we posted a guard day and night. And as you read through the passage, they uh, get to the point where they're, they're not just uh, building with both hands, they're building with one hand and holding their weapons with the other hand so that they're prepared to fight. They, they continue on and they, they post a guard. They pray and they post a guard. And Nehemiah is the one who encourages his people and he says about the enemy, don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. And later on he says, our God will fight for us. I wonder, as you see here this morning, hearing about a story that happened a long, long time ago, um, how does this apply to you and to me? I wonder if maybe as you sit there, if you could think of someone 
uh, in your life who instills fear in you. I've had a few of those in my, um, in my life. Um, I remember my working life when I worked at Nissan, there was one manager and he seemed to instill fear in everyone. But maybe there's someone in your life who's like that or maybe something that you're facing that seems just like an impossible obstacle, something that's stopping you from growing, stopping you from being the kind of person that you know that God would want you to be, something that's stopping you from building up the broken walls of your life. That's what Sanballat was to Nehemiah and the Jews in Jerusalem. He wanted to get them to quit the thing that God had called them to do. His goal was to tear down rather than to build up. And maybe for you and me today, uh, as we've come through these quite difficult years, um, Sanballat for you and me might take the form of just discouragement or fatigue or just plain fear about what's to come. And these are just some of the enemies, aren't they, of, of rebuilding, of getting back to the way God wants us to be. We are living in turbulent and uncertain times and it's easy to succumb to fear and to let fear uh, cripple us. And I think Nehemiah would say to you and to me, remember the Lord who is great and awesome. Really what Elvis shared with us. We need to come back to, the, to, to understanding and remembering that we have a great and awesome God and that God is on our side. Well, as well as physical threats and psychological games, uh, Nehemiah had a number of personal challenges. When you get to chapter 5 of Nehemiah, he's not just dealing with enemies from outside, he's dealing with actually his own people who are uh, doing all sorts of things, mistreating each other. Uh, the wealthy ones are exploiting the poor and, uh, and so on. And so that's uh, a really sad thing that he's got to deal with and he deals with it very powerfully with a lot of um, energy. But you get to the next chapter and the, the um, challenge comes again from Sanballat where he gets uh, four messages in a row from uh, Sanballat and Geshem basically saying, come over to this neutral territory. They see that the wall's starting to get really, you know, nearly finished and they're quite concerned. Come over to neutral territory and uh, we'll have a top-level consultation. We'll have some talks. And uh, Nehemiah very clearly uh, gets back to them a number of times and says, hey, this work I'm doing is too important, I can't come. But he also says um, he knows that it's, gonna, it's, a, it's a scam. He, he knows they're really just trying to get, take his life. So they want him to get, get him away from, where, from his supports and uh, to, uh, he knows it's an assassination plot. And they say, come and meet us on the plains of Ono. And uh, Nehemiah's response is... Oh no, uh, that, was, that was my one attempt at humour for this morning. Now the next thing that happens, after four attempts to do that, they send a, a fifth attempt and it's described as an unsealed letter, uh, which might suggest that this letter was uh, unsealed because they wanted in its, in its passage down to Nehemiah to get rid of a lot of places so that the message would get out there. And the unsealed letter says, we have it on good authority that you... Nehemiah are trying to actually set yourself up as king. You're setting, building up these walls around Jerusalem so that you can actually be the king of a little kingdom. And uh, what's it going to be like if that gets back to Artaxerxes, the king of Persia, who's actually sponsored you to come and do the rebuilding of the walls? What's that going to look like? And so it's a total fabrication, and uh, Nehemiah knows it. But it's another one of those things that could have been a total distraction. He's got to think, well, should I go back and tell Artaxerxes that this isn't really what's happening, uh, you know, that I defend myself? No, he just uh, carries on with the work. 
Um, if that's not enough, then another guy called Shemaiah, I think his name is, he's a would-be prophet, uh, he says, you know, look, you, your life's under threat. I've, heard, I've, I've got this message from somewhere. Your life's under threat. Come into the temple with me and hide. And uh, Nehemiah doesn't want to do that either because, number one, his place isn't in the temple. Uh, number two, he feels like he'd be just running away from, um, from the, the task that he has. And so he, he again, he, he opposed that. But there's all these little things coming. And then lastly... Um, there seems to have been, as Ali talked about, these waves of, of Jews who have come back from uh, Babylon. Uh, some of them have been back quite a long time, and so they're much more settled than the ones who've come with Nehemiah. And so there's, there seems to be a whole lot of things going on that have gone on over time. And uh, so you find out that Sanballat's uh, daughter is actually married to a grandson of the Jewish high priest. So that's interesting. And uh, Tobiah and his son had both married uh, Jewish women. And it seems that the marriages had made them and many other Jewish families beholden to Tobiah. So there's this real compromise sort of cliques going on. And uh, so you can imagine Nehemiah trying to work all this stuff out. These uh, people who were sort of aligned with Tobiah because of relationship, they kept telling Nehemiah um, what a good bloke Tobiah was. Uh, and Tobiah is just totally opposed to everything Nehemiah is trying to do. Um, and he's getting intimidating letters from Tobiah, all this sort of thing. Anyway, despite all of these challenges, the wall is built. It says, on October the 2nd, the wall was finished just 52 days after we'd begun. Now, as I said before, it probably wasn't the, the rebuilding the total wall. It was, it was a lot of repairing, but it's absolutely remarkable achievement. And Nehemiah achieved this not by removing the fear of attack and reprisal, but by helping the people face their fears, by pointing the people towards God and getting them to understand that God was their defender, God was their shield, God was the one in whom they could trust. And I think in these chapters we have a, a really powerful contrast as the fear of God stands up against the fear of man. And maybe you've sensed that struggle in your life. I certainly have. We can easily succumb to the wrong kind of fears. The surrounding enemies have tried very, very hard to frighten Nehemiah and the Jews. Um, they've used all these underhand methods. But ultimately, um, chapter 6 of Nehemiah ends with fear forced back on the heads of Nehemiah's enemies uh, because they get a glimpse of the God who is actually to be feared. It says in, in the end of uh, Nehemiah chapter 6, when our enemies and the surrounding nations heard about it, they were frightened and humiliated. They realised this work had been done with the help of our God. There are lessons here for all of us, aren't they, who perhaps easily succumb to the wrong kind of fears. Nehemiah responds to God with the right kind of fear, fear that humbly acknowledges and obeys God because of who he is. It's the fear of God that causes Nehemiah to seek the presence of God and to pray through all these obstacles. It's the fear of God that causes Nehemiah to respond in anger when he sees the name of God being maligned by disobedient people because he cares deeply about the glory of God's name. And it's the fear of God that causes Nehemiah to put his heart and soul into the work that God has called him to do. Now, he's by no means uh, perfect, and the people he leads are far, far from perfect. But Nehemiah is trusting in a faithful God. He fears his God, 
with the right kind of fear. And because of that, he doesn't fear anything else. When Yvonne spoke a couple of weeks ago, she talked about how the arc of history is long and it bends towards Jesus. And uh, the return of the Israelites to Jerusalem and the re rebuilding of the wall was just one more step towards the fulfilment of this prophetic hope of a new covenant of the kingdom of God. And the full realisation of that hope came only when God himself entered personally into Israel's story in the person of Jesus, their Messiah and their King. And through his life, through his death, through his resurrection and through the gift of the Holy Spirit, followers of Jesus can know the personal presence of God in every moment of every day. And because they know Jesus and they know that he walks side by side with them, they can face things in a totally different way. Jesus was the one who in, in uh, turbulent times leading up to his death said to his followers, in the world you will have trouble but don't fear because I've overcome the world. That's the, the faith that a follower of Jesus can have in a God who loves them and who's given everything in the person of Jesus to make it possible for them to be in relationship with God, to have no uh, fears that overcome them because they fear a God who they can trust. Now, David probably experienced a lot of things like Nehemiah felt. And in Psalm, Psalm 27, which Nehemiah might have known, uh, David expressed what I think was at the heart of Nehemiah's, Nehemiah's experience. And that was a passion uh, for closeness to God himself. And this is what uh, David says in Psalm 27. I want to close with this. We're going to, we're going to sing a, a, a song in a moment that says there's nothing worth more that will ever come close. No thing can compare. You're our living hope. Your presence, Lord. And I want to suggest this morning that Nehemiah's secret and potentially your secret and my secret to living a life without fear is to know, the, to have a passion for knowing God and to being close to him. This is what David says. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When the wicked advance against me to devour me, it is my enemies and my foes who will stumble and fall. Though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear. Though war break out against me, even then I will be confident. One thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. My prayer for you this morning is that you may know uh, the God that Nehemiah knew, the God who comes to us in our fears and says to us, fear me, and you don't need to fear anything else. Thanks, God.